I love that. It was written by Fanny Crosby. And uh, Fanny Crosby was blinded at a very young age. She had an illness, and the doctors did not understand some of the medical that they know today. And they put some acid on her eyes to try to be a help to her, and it burned her eyes in such a way that she became blind from a very early age. And um, she was used to write over 5,000 poems and hymns about our Savior. I love that second verse. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love. You know, the greatest story man has ever heard is that God loves them. I don't know why. We were out there the other night at the at the camp out. We were down in Glen Allen, Missouri. If you don't know where that's at, you drive till you lose phone service, and then you drive about another 10 or 15 miles beyond that. And uh, we were looking up at the stars in the heavens, the vastness of space. We could see the Milky Way and saw some satellites and some shooting stars and the vastness of space. The psalmist said that he holds the heavens in the palm of his hand. He doesn't say that to show that there's a limitation to God. He shows it as a comparison for you and I to understand that God has no limits. God is, when you look at the expanse of the universe, and then you look at the expanse of the universe's Outside of our universe and the space, the heavens, the stars, the sun, the moon. The psalmist said, when I consider those things, he said, what is man that thou art mindful of him? We sat there the other night around that fire talking about this. And I'll tell you, when you start seeing God the way that He really is, it causes us to wonder even more why. Did He love me? It causes us to wonder even more why He was willing to lay aside all of the glories of being God and to humble Himself, according to Philippians 2, and become like a man. Being found in fashion as a man, the Bible says He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Why in the world would God do that? I'll be real frankly, I told some folks a while back, I said, you know, I, I've got three kids. I love them all, depending on what day of the week, some more than others. I'll be real frank with you. There, there would not be any person in this world that would be a good enough friend to me, that would love me enough, that I would be friends with, that I would say I would be willing to give one of my children to die in their place. There's not. I love you all, but I'm sorry, there's not one of you. But God did. I don't understand the love of God. I know about it. I believe it. I'm thankful for it. But I certainly do not understand it. Because it would be one thing if we were righteous. The Bible tells us that He died for us when we were still sinners. I don't know about you, but... I love Him awful lot. 
when I begin to see how much He loves me, how can you not? By the way, when you begin to realize how much He loves you, how can you not love Him? How can you not love Him? We love Him because He's first loved us. I... uh, been torn a little bit today on what to preach on, and so we're going to preach on the entire Bible. We're going to begin in Genesis. Y'all think I'm kidding? We're going to preach it all today. Y'all get hungry? Just bring your food up here and settle in. We'll just keep right on going. I am going to do my best to try to give a high-level synopsis of what the Bible is here for and what it tells us. Let's look in Genesis chapter number 2. Genesis chapter number 2, if you will. We'll begin in verse number 7. By the way, I will say this. The Bible tells us in the book of John, chapter number 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When everything began, time began, God already was God didn't have a beginning. He's been in eternity past. He'll be in eternity future. And those are really oxymorons because in eternity there is no past or future. He's just always been. The Bible tells us in Genesis 1 that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Don't let somebody with a bunch of letters behind their name that the Bible says have been willingly ignorant tell you that it was created any other way than that God spoke it into existence. We know that the Bible tells us quite clearly that God said, and it was so. As we get to the end of creation, God creates man, and He puts him in the middle of a garden that He has prepared for man to dress it and to keep it. By the way, can I help you with something? This isn't even the message this morning. I've heard people say, boy, if Adam hadn't sinned, we wouldn't have to work. No, no, God designed us to work. In fact, you want to find a person that's... that's, that's uh, depressed all the time, and especially men, that's depressed and, and, and frustrated, you find somebody that can't work, that's disabled, not able to work. Because God designed us to work. Now, sin brought work by the sweat of our brow. That's what we can get on to Adam about. <laughs> but work is satisfying for a man. It's, it's what completes him. It's what God designed us for. We ought to work, by the way. We're living in a day where... The government's trying to tell everybody not to work. Can I tell you this? God tells us we ought to work. And uh, we get to chapter number 2, Genesis chapter number 2. And uh, he uh, began in verse number, uh, let's start in verse number 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. By the way, he's the only part of creation that God formed with his own hands. Everything else God spoke into existence. He formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put man whom he had formed, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first was Pison, and that it is which come passeth the whole land of uh, Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. There is uh, Belium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon, 
the same is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. The name of the third river is Hedekel, which is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make for him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found in help meat for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, notice little g here, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and had sowed, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for Your Word and what it teaches us, how it shows us that we're all sinners, that there is a price to be paid, how it shows us that there is not anything that we can do to pay for that sin, and that You loved us enough that You were willing to pay for it for us. Lord, such a simple story, and yet so profound as we go through history expression of Your love and Your long-suffering. The fact that You're willing to give mercy and grace and redemption. Lord, what a joy it is to our hearts to read these truths. What a blessing that even though in our, our sinful and depraved condition, we have a God that loves us enough. Lord, we're thankful that You've made a way that Your plan has been perfect from the very beginning that You have made a way for each and every one of us to trust You as our Savior, to have our sins forgiven, to have a Savior that will cleanse us from those sins, and to give us a home in heaven for all of eternity. I pray that You'll bless the time that we spend here together around Your Word. May You use it as You would see fit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. 
were given uh, the opportunity to live without sin. I believe personally that death did not exist until sin. That had there not been sin, Adam and Eve would have continued to live indefinitely and throughout uh, in eternity. But the truth is, they did sin. And some people debate different things. And I'm not going to get into the, all the theological implications of the fact that Eve added to the words that God had actually told Adam. And I'm not going to get into We've taught those at other times. I'm not going to get into all of those things. But suffice to say that Satan used two tactics here. And he's used those same two tactics throughout all of history. In fact, he still uses them today. He begins by trying to entice us to do what's wrong. The Bible says that when she saw that the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, that's what caused her to take of the fruit. And then it says that after she took of the fruit, that she gave also unto her husband. And these two words, I think, show us the other tactic that Satan uses. It says that she gave also unto her husband with her. Adam was not off in the garden somewhere and not knowing what his wife was doing. Adam was standing right there watching what was going on. And while Eve was deceived by the serpent, Eve was certainly tricked by the serpent. We find that in the New Testament. The Bible speaks of the fact that Eve was deceived. Adam took willingly. Adam took because his wife had taken, and he felt pressured. Well, Eve did. Well, I need to do it too. And Satan has used those two tactics over all these years to try to get men to sin. It makes sin look much better than it ever is. And have you ever noticed how this world tends to make sin look so glamorous? They try to, they try to call things that are right wrong, and they try to call, th- call things that are wrong right. The Bible says that the woe unto them that will do that, that type of a thing. It's a shame that a country or a civilization or society would begin to take the moral law of God and to uh, say that the moral law of God is evil and then begin to take the moral law of man and lift it up and to make gods out of man's philosophy and man's thoughts and say that man is the pinnacle of creation, therefore his moral standard is right. Can I tell you this? My Bible tells me that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We shared a few weeks ago that every religion that's ever been out there, everything that ever talks about anything to do with God or uh, the things of God, fall into one of two categories. It's either a works type of a salvation, or it is a faith alone salvation. And then we have to look and say, okay, which one of those is right? Which one of those is truth? So we have to begin to say, okay, how do I know which one's truth? And we look at the source. We find that the Bible, which is God's Word, tells us that it's faith alone. We find that a works salvation is brought about by man's thought and man's philosophy. There's a couple things I know absolutely for certain. Number one is man is fallible. We can be wrong, and I know this, men lie. I know this also, that God is infallible, and God cannot. Why? So if I have to choose what I'm going to risk the eternal destination of my soul on, I'm going to trust the source that cannot be wrong and that cannot lie. That I'm going to look to and I'm going to say, if there's any truth to be found, there it is. That's truth. We find that in His Word. 
He comes here and He tells us the story of creation, and He tells us the story of the fall of man. And because Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, if you will, take your Bibles, and we're going to look at several passages of Scripture. Turn with me, if you will, to the New Testament, to the book of Romans, chapter number 5. Romans chapter number 5. And I want to give you a very familiar verse. Many people have memorized this verse. But it's one that teaches us what took place because of the fact that Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden and because Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter number 5, and as we get down here to verse number 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon how many men? What does it say there? All men. For that what? All have what? Sin. And so some people say, well, uh, death passed upon me because Adam sinned. No, death caught, passed upon me because I've sinned. Adam was the one that helped give me that sinful nature, that desire to want to sin. Adam's the one that awoke inside of me that sinful condition that causes me to be tempted and to follow after the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. But I have sinned willingly, and by the way, so have you. Romans chapter 3, and verse number 23, tells us very clearly, For all have sinned, not most, not some. He says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I don't think too many people in this world today that I have ever talked to would refute that fact. In fact, most people acknowledge it willingly and readily. Yes, I have sinned. I've told a lie, or I've done this, or I've done that. I've sinned. You know what the problem is? Man has decided, man has decided, that if I can do enough good to outweigh my bad, <laughs> that God will weigh it one day on this big justice scale, and as long as my good outweighs my bad, He'll let me into heaven. No, no. No, no. That's what man came up with. Can I help you understand something? There's something I know for sure. Man is fallible, <laughs> and man can lie. There's another thing I know for sure. God is infallible, and God cannot lie. I'm going to trust anybody. I'm going to trust what God has said. And what God has told me is that my righteousness, that's the very best I have. My righteousness are as filthy rags in the eyes of God. That's what God says about it. How in the world would I ever come to God with an armload of filthy rags? We went uh, camping this week. We caught 55 bass. Since we've cleaned them, and there's no evidence to the contrary, they were all at least 15 to 18 pounders. We got ready to leave. There was a bag that we had thrown all the carcasses in. You ever had fish that sat out in the, in the open air for a day and the sun beating on it in a plastic bag? You ever smelled them? How many of you like that smell? You want to be around it. You just want to open that bag and just stick your head in there. Any of you? We got ready to leave yesterday, and they had that bag sitting there. They said, Preacher, what are we going to do with that? And I said, Well, I said, I guess we can haul it back and throw it in the dumpster. I said, I don't know what else to do. And my, my uh, friends, my, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law that were there on the property, uh, they were gone, and I couldn't get a hold of them. I was going to see if they'd let us throw them out in the woods or something. And so I said, Well, set them on the back of my truck. And uh, they started to put them in, John started setting them in the back of my truck, and he was going to set it on my brand new chair. I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Don't put it on that. I don't want my chair stinking. 
And uh, we dropped the tailgate, set them there. And as I got ready to leave, I finally got a hold of my sister-in-law. I said, hey, is there a way we can dump these in your, in your burn barrel out here and you can just burn them? And they didn't even want the smell in their burn barrel. They said, take them way out there in the woods. So I took them ten feet out. And uh, we dumped that bag upside down. I had Jonathan with me and uh, his friend Joey. And there was some trash. Some people had dropped in some, some paper towels and some paper plates and some water bottles in there with that. And I didn't want to leave trash in the woods. I figured the animals would come eat the, the carcasses. And so I told the boys, I said, get some gloves on and go in there and start picking that trash out of there and throw it back in the bag. And can I tell you this? That was not an enviable job to have. They began to weed through those fish carcasses and that smell wafting up. And I thought, I wonder if my righteousness appears that way to God. The filthiness of it. The wickedness of it. The very best I have to offer. How could I ever expect Him to put that on one side of a scale and for that to be enough for me to get to heaven? It's not. In fact, there was a rich young ruler came to Christ. He said, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gave him several examples. He said, I want you to go keep all the commandments. And he said, well, I've done that since I was a youth. He said, okay, now take all that you have and give it to the poor. The Bible says the young man went away sorrowful. If he had gone and given everything away that he had, he would have come back to Christ and Christ would have given him another thing to do. And what Christ was trying to teach this fellow is it will never be enough. In fact, you say, Brother Greg, how do you know that that's what he was teaching? Because the disciples, uh, just after the man left, said, well, what's going on here? How can this man get there? And he said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And by that, he's taking it within the context of the passage that this rich man trusting in his riches to get him to heaven. He wasn't saying it was difficult. He wasn't saying it was hard. He was saying it was impossible. In fact, so much so that he tells the disciples, with men it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I can't come to Christ with what I have. I can't come to Christ with what I can do. I don't earn my way to heaven. I don't deserve heaven. I come to Him because of His grace that is extended to me. Because of the love that He gives me even though I don't deserve it. I come to Christ simply trusting Him, not what I can do. In Romans chapter number 5, I love this passage. It says in verse number 8, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a joy. What a joy. Hold your place here for a moment. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter number 9. Hebrews chapter number 9. And I'm going to try to be very clear on this and very careful on this because we're going to give you a bird's eye view of a lot of information in a short period of time. And I want to ask you, if you will, to to try to keep your mind focused and bear with me on this as we give it to you because it's going to make some great sense here in just a moment as we pull it all together. Hebrews chapter number 9 and verse number 2. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after that, the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, 
which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing, notice this, the mercy seat of which we cannot speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. Now I want to stop for a moment and look right up this way for me. I'll try to help you. When man sinned and God created the Israelites, His chosen people, the Hebrews, the Jews, He set up a way for them to have uh, what they refer to as uh, the, uh, uh, the Passover or the redemption of sins and uh, the, uh, the act of being able to make a sacrifice for the payment of their sin or for, the, uh, for the next year. And so they built this tabernacle in the wilderness under Moses' leadership later on when the children of Israel go into Canaan and they establish the land, they build a temple, which is a permanent structure of this. God gave very specific instructions about the tabernacle and later on the temple. The reason for this is because in the book of Hebrews it tells us, and we'll probably get here in just a few moments where it shows this, that the things on earth were a pattern or shadow of what was in heaven. It was just a duplication on earth of things that are established in heaven. And so they had a tabernacle and it was, had walls around it. And in this outer court, this outer area, uh, the priests would labor and they would serve daily and ministering to the people and they would make sacrifices and burn incense. But once a year, the high priest, the one that was in charge of all of it, was to make a particular sacrifice that was to be a covering for the sin of the people for that year. And as he cleansed himself in the outer temple, the outer part of the tabernacle, he would make that sacrifice and then he would enter into what the Bible refers to here as the holiest of all. We call it the Holy of Holies. It was a smaller room that was sectioned off with a veil, a very thick veil, that inside of it uh, was the Ark of the Covenant, which had uh, the Aaron's rod, it had uh, some manna in it, and it had the tablets that had the commandments on it that Moses had written. And uh, the arms of some cherubims were over top of that, and the Bible called that the mercy seat. This is the place that once they built the tabernacle and they consecrated it to God in the wilderness, the Bible says that the Shekinah glory of God came and filled that holy place. It was where God's presence resided in the midst of His people. He was so holy and man was so sinful that even the high priest, having the covering of the blood of the sacrifice, would have to back into the veil of the temple. He would approach the the mercy seat, uh, behind him he would sprinkle the blood that was shed on that mercy seat. And having done that, he would then come out of that area and the blood uh, had covered the sins of the people for another year. These were not the things that were cleansing the people, but these were the actions that God asked them to do to show their faith in what was to come. What was to come was to be a lamb that was slain, the Bible says, from the foundation of the earth, the Lamb of the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, as he sees Jesus approaching as he's baptizing in the Jordan River, lifted his eyes and saw Him coming and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. When Jesus was born and laid in that wonderful place, the Tower of the Flock, there right outside the gate of Bethlehem, 
he was inspected by the Levitical priests and found to be without spot and without blemish and was wrapped in those swaddling clothes. He was laid down in that manger, that place that was there for them to keep observing him and watching him. And the light was lit above it, saying, A lamb that was worthy of sacrifice had been born. What an amazing thought. Jesus, the Lamb that was slain. Jesus dies on the cross. He raises from the dead three days later, and Mary, walking through the garden, comes to Him. She doesn't recognize Him. She sees Him, thinks He's the gardener. And she said, if you know where they've taken Him, please let me know. And Jesus says, Mary, He calls her by name. We talked about this the other night. Aren't you glad Jesus knows your name? He calls her by name, and immediately she knows who He is. I don't know what's going through Mary's mind. I really don't. The Bible doesn't tell us this. I can't help but think, this is my opinion, I can't help but think that she began to run to embrace Him. But we do know that Jesus said, Do not touch me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Just a short time later, he appears to his disciples, and the Bible says that they handled him. They put the, their, their hands in the prince and in his side. Sometime between the time that Jesus rose from the dead and met Mary in the garden, and the time that he met with those men on the road to Emmaus, and the time that he spent with his disciples, sometime in that time period, Jesus went up to heaven. Notice as we go in verse number 7 of chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews. I'm sorry, this verse number 11. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He entered in once into the holy place. Which, what is he talking about here? Well, if it's not a tabernacle built with hands, there's only one place I know where a tabernacle like that would be. And that's in heaven. He entered into that holy place. Having obtained, notice this, eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified through the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Jesus took His own blood to heaven, walked into the Holy of Holies, into the throne room of God, where the mercy seat that was built not with hands, but by God Himself, took that blood, that perfect blood, that sinless blood, that precious blood, and He sprinkled it on that mercy seat once for all. We don't have to have the sacrifices of the Old Testament anymore. Jesus has done it once and for all. And it satisfied the justice of a holy God. It was enough. 
number of years ago, I had been off to college. I played sports in my high school years. You can tell that, right? Very athletic. Played basketball. I loved basketball. Never paid to get in a gym because I was always on the team. We went in through the locker room. I came home from college the first time I was home. And uh, I was going to watch a game. I wanted to go back to my school and see it. And I get up to the gate there at the Christian school, at the church that my dad pastored. And uh, I had forgotten that you had to pay to get in. I didn't even think about it, not to mention I was a poor college student. Didn't have two nickels to rub together. Didn't have the money if I could have paid, if I knew I'd paid. I get up to the gate, and I, I'm embarrassed, and I looked at the person that was running the gate, and I said, I'm so sorry. I said, I didn't bring any money with me. I, I just don't, I just, I'm sorry. I, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll bring some later. I'll get some for Mom and Dad and bring it to you. And she said, that's okay. Come on in. You're related. I'll never forget that. I walked into that gym. And tears start running down my eyes, not because I was related to my earthly father, but I thought, you know, one of these days I'm going to get to heaven. And I'm going to be embarrassed, and I'm going to bow my head and say, Lord, I don't deserve to be here. I don't have enough to pay to get into this place. I can't. And he's going to say, come on in. You're related. Because Jesus died on a cross, took His blood, and put it on that mercy seat to cover my sins. If I had been Jesus, after all that I went through to do all that, in my old flesh nature, I would have probably said, I'm going to charge these people an awful lot because of what I've done. The price I've had to pay, it has cost me dearly. Boy, they're going to really have to work and earn this. But not my Savior. My Savior did it willingly and said, I'm not going to charge them a thing. I, they don't have to earn it. They don't have to do certain things in order to gain it. They just got to trust me. They got to put their faith in me. They got to trust that what I did for them on Calvary is enough. That it paid the penalty. It's that simple. You know, if God loves us as much as He says that He loves us, which I believe He does, why would He make it hard? Wouldn't He have a desire for every man, every woman, every boy, every girl to come and trust Him as their Savior? Wouldn't He make that as simple as possible? Wouldn't He do everything that He could to keep us from having to go to hell? I've heard that said so many times over the years as I've shared the Gospel with folks. As I get to the penalty of sin and begin explaining that, I've heard them say, I don't believe a loving God would send anyone to hell. And I used to try to argue that point and say that other things about it, but the truth of it is I agree with them on that. I don't believe a loving God would send anybody to hell. I think He would do everything in His power to keep men from going there. I'm talking about even if it meant sending His only Son 
to die in our place and pay that horrible debt for us. Which is exactly what He did. If you and I go to hell now, we do it rejecting the love of God. And we do it trampling through the precious blood of our wonderful Savior. God has made a way. And while it has been very costly for you and I, He's made it free. Our sin cost an awful lot. It cost a price that you and I could never pay. But He gives it to us freely. I'm thankful that I don't have to go through a priest anymore. I don't have to take lambs and goats. I don't have to have them offered every year. I'm thankful I have a Savior. Perfect, sinless Lamb of God who wants and for all, shed His blood, took that blood up to the mercy seat in heaven and sprinkled it. You know, the Bible says when He rose from the dead, or when He was crucified, I'm sorry, that that veil in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies and the outer part of the tabernacle, the Bible says that it tore and tore in twain. I thought of that often. It's interesting to me. They would tie oftentimes a scarlet cord to the ankle of the high priest and they would put bells on the fringe of his garment because the Holy of Holies, the holiest of all, was such a sacred place. And entering into the divine presence of an absolute holy God, that if that priest were contaminated or had not gone through the purification that he needed to, if somehow he messed up in the process of doing his high priestly duties, the Bible says that the holiness and the Shekinah glory of God was so great that it would strike him dead. No one being able to enter into that holy place because of the presence of God could go in to get that high priest. And so they would use that scarlet cord oftentimes to pull the body out if that was ever the case or that ever happened. When Jesus died on the cross, that place that was inaccessible for man, that place that man could never go and face the presence of God, that veil was ripped in twain. Could you imagine the look on those priests' face the first moment that they glanced toward the holiest of all and for the very first time, stood face to face with God's presence. Aren't you glad God reconciles you and I? God has made a way for a sinful, ungodly human man and an absolute holy God, which the Bible says in Him is no darkness at all, to be reconciled, to have fellowship. Only God could do that. You and I couldn't. But I'm so thankful He did. And He walks with me and He talks with me. He tells me I am His own. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, none other has ever known. I get the opportunity now that I'm saved and on my way to heaven. At any moment I need to, I can say, Father, and I can begin talking with Him. 
I can come into His presence. In fact, I didn't take you to the place in Hebrews, but a little bit earlier in the book of Hebrews, it says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. I'm thankful for that, aren't you? That Jesus died once and for all. Took His own blood as the price for our sin, the payment for our sin. Sprinkled it on that mercy seat. And said, I now stand between God and man. And I reconcile them. I bring them together in fellowship. Oh, I'm so thankful for that. You and I can sit here today and rejoice and say, I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm saved. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ did for me. Oh, what a joy. What a joy. And He makes it simple. All we have to do is trust Him. Say, Lord... I love the I love the, the 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 story when the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee. One of the most profound and yet simple prayers I think in all of the Bible. They were in that storm. They cried out to Jesus. They said, "Lord, save us. We perish." Can I tell you that that's just a prayer of faith. Lord, save us. For we perish. I'll tell you this. Every man that's ever been born, because of our sin, we're perishing. And we need to say, Lord, save us. We perish. I'm trusting you to save me, not me. It's that simple. It's that simple. makes you wonder why it would be so difficult. Why so many people try to make it such a difficult process. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. We pray that You'll bless it. And Lord, use the teaching and the preaching of it.